Hi, I'm Elise Kennedy. Welcome to Jada's Startup Tech Series, where we host entrepreneurs, venture funds, and technology companies on trends across the industry. Today, I am excited to be joined by Jonathan DeVette, the co-founder of digital asset firm ZeroCap. Thanks for joining me today, Jonathan. Thanks, Elise. Good to be here. Now, I'm not sure how many people have heard of ZeroCap. Can you give me a brief overview, but also add why investors should be listening right now, given there has been a little bit of negative energy, <laughs> for lack of a better <laughs> word, around some of those digital investments? Sure. Yeah, look, appreciate it. So we're a full-service digital asset firm. We're one of the only regulated crypto asset firms in Australia. One of the big problems institutions have is the ability to actually hold crypto assets as an asset class and also adopt the technology. So pretty early on, we decided to go down the path of being a strong institutional counterparty through investment banking products and technology. So the digital asset space or crypto space is in a very interesting point at the moment. Obviously, over the last seven, eight months, we've had everything from huge credit failures to inflation risks to questions around whether crypto is a risk asset or not. But what's really interesting is the institutions post-COVID have really, really adopted this asset class and technology in their um, broader corporate strategies. At the moment, we're working closely with the ANZ Bank, the ASX, and a number of other institutions to enable their digital asset strategy. And this is really interesting because quite often with radical innovation, when you get top-down adoption curves, that's generally when the asset class and the technology tends to really flourish. And for many years, we've had this as almost a radical innovation that's been kind of filled by market participants that are really proponents of um, the asset class and the technology. But now we're starting to see that top-down adoption, which is positive for investors and really positive for technology as an industry. If I understand correctly, you're just working as an asset class, much like equities, bonds, other type of asset classes. Yeah, it's a good question. So we view technology as an asset class unto itself. And that's whether you're talking about Apple, Google, or crypto assets. But what's really interesting is the underlying technology in blockchain and crypto as an asset class uh, is very, very valuable to the broader financial system. And that can be from a diversification perspective. So if you look at Bitcoin at the moment, it's rallying as a non-sovereign bearer asset, right? Against what we've traditionally seen as either a risk asset or safe haven, which is great for portfolios. But you've also got amazing innovations in Ethereum and um, different blockchains that can actually enable payments, enable big banks to share risk and create efficiencies around everything that they do. So whilst we view it ourselves as an investment and a technology, we also see the broader application and really kind of pursue that in what we do. And so I've had to ask, you mentioned a few of your prior customers and who's utilizing that in Australia today. Are they your main customer base? It is interesting the way things have shifted for us over the last year, to be honest. About a year ago, we had 70% of our customer base being traditional finance, right? So everything from investment funds to family offices, to high net worth individuals, and then 30% in crypto native. Now we're seeing it's more 50-50 crypto native and traditional investment firms and financial institutions. 
And the reason is because of all the credit risk we've seen over the last six months in the crypto space, more and more crypto native players are looking for a licensed firm with strong backing in a tier one jurisdiction, basically. And we offer them custody, market making, trading services, as well as innovation and research. So we're more of a balanced firm, I'd say now, than we were a year ago. And we're also a firm that sees ourselves connecting the crypto space with traditional finance. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, this top-down adoption, they need connectors and they need bridges to the technology and to the asset class. And that's really where we've found our niche. I think I know what crypto native means, but in case anyone on the line is new to the space. No, that that's a good that's a good point. So <laughs> the crypto space has been mired with little mini bubbles of both culture and capital movement and flows. And really a lot of that's been driven by venture capital. So the venture capital uh, money comes in and you get all these little pockets of disruption and you get value growth, just very much like you see startups. And that until really over the last year has almost had a wall in between the traditional investment landscape, um, but also traditional financial institutions that adopt the technology. And that wall now is very much being broken down. But crypto native is really the technology, the market participants in the crypto space and the different proponents of the technology itself. Makes sense. And then Eurocap, where are you geographically at the moment? Our headquarters are proudly in Melbourne. I know you're there in Sydney, at least, but we've got to ring the bell (laughs) when we can (laughs) for Melbourne. That's where our headquarters are. We've got customers in 50 different countries. I'm sitting here in London at the moment. I've been here for a year. We've opened our office out here in the UK, which is really exciting. We've got plans to open an office in Singapore later this year. And Hong Kong has just recently very much opened up again to crypto as an asset class. So whilst we won't necessarily open an office there, we see Singapore as a really good channel into the Hong Kong market. But I'd say we're proudly Australian and Asian-centric, you know, and a lot of our growth and the office out here in the UK has been a function of natural organic growth of customers that need servicing and trading from this time zone. So it's exciting to be expanding out here, but we are very much Australian and Asian firm. That's very exciting. And it's interesting to hear that the firm's still growing geographically, despite some of the challenges which you've seen uh, amongst tech and and crypto. So great to hear. And then what, out of curiosity, how do you capture your clients? What's the go-to-market strategy? Yeah, so we're backed by the VIX Morgan Group. They're an equity holder on our cap table. And they were a customer of ours from the very beginning and an awesome customer and great partner to have So they very much opened the doors to the family office space. So our go-to-market strategy was to enable family offices to invest in a safe and secure way. And that was back in 2020 when the Vixmore Group joined our business. Back then, we took very much a wealth management approach, very high-touch, relationship-driven sales to build not only advocacy for the asset class and trust in the asset class, but also an understanding of, of why this is going to be game-changing and is game-changing uh, into the future. Now we've become, as I mentioned, more of a 50-50 crypto-native or crypto-industry service provider as well as uh, traditional. So a lot of what we do now is more B2B and institutional. 
in a sense. So we face hedge funds, prop firms, investment funds for liquidity. So we allow them to trade and buy and sell spot, um, as well as derivatives now. So structured products are basically a way to structure up different parts of the space. So futures markets, options markets, and spot to create defined payoff structures. So these more sophisticated offerings quite often are more for active trading firms as opposed to family offices that need access and understanding on the space. So in that way, we've become more sophisticated in our go-to-market and how we service different firms in there. That's also been reflected in our staff base. So you know, we've hired the ex-managing director of Deutsche Bank, New York, to come in. Um, we've got some people from Optiva, the ex-head of Exotics from Westpac, these more sophisticated trading products are really where we're where we're heading in, in the direction at the moment. That leads me to a good question I was going to ask about the platform of ZeroCap itself. Do you think those capabilities that you have now are more technology-driven or is it more human capabilities? Yeah, it's a good question. I'd say it's a balance at the moment, but moving more and more towards the technology side. And the crypto space has been interesting because Whilst a lot of what blockchain is, is around great disruptive technology, they've struggled to adapt really strong risk management systems, technology that can actually map uh, different delta risks and in options markets, Greeks, creating volatility curves. A lot of the technology we've built in-house is around mapping those risks to ensure that our customers are facing a counterparty that they can trust whether that be for trading, structured products, or on-chain custody, which is what we offer. So more and more, we're moving to technology to solve a lot of these problems. We also have a customer-facing front-end that they can access reporting and see their positions and verify their assets are there and on-chain. And that is very much a technology focus. Where the human element comes in is uh, very much like your business at Jardin, right? When you're an investment bank, in many ways, you have to have an investment banking approach. And a lot of that is understanding your client at a very deep level, figuring out how you can offer really good trading products, whether that be from basic spot all the way to the really sophisticated stuff. And whilst technology can automate a lot of the processes, really the understanding of a client, I think, is always going to be face-to-face over a coffee or here in London, in many cases, a beer because they're total booze hounds in um, in the UK. <laughs> and I don't think that will change anytime soon. So, <laughs> so different in Australia, of course. So yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. in terms of the industry, now I'm going to just jump in here. Look, I feel like it's been overshadowed. The crypto contagion last few, you know, months or a year, it feels like now with FTX and so how have you remained so resilient and kept on growing? What's different? You know, I ran a prop firm before ZeroCap, right? So my role at ZeroCap is the CIO. And uh, I've seen a lot of carnage over the years. Everything from being involved in uh, brokers that have gone under in the FX space before ZeroCap to seeing traders, not in my firm, but traders around us blowing up, taking on too much leverage, taking on too much risk. And uh, it's bred into me a healthy fear and kind of cautious approach to counterparties and markets. And when you look at what's happened in the crypto space, 
most of it is a function of centralized entities like exchanges, like FTX, Celsius, Genesis, taking on too much risk and not having enough regulatory oversight. So we've solved that by being licensed, having everything that we do audited, making sure that all the counterparties we deal with sit under our credit risk policy and make sure that we're not overly exposed to any one individual counterparty. Those that we do expose ourselves to, you know, we try and ensure they're regulated or we have special off-exchange margining facilities and credit lines. Like these are way to, ways to mitigate risk. And it's interesting that when you're in a bull market and everyone's FOMOing in, like most people tend to forget that stuff. And you kind of sound like a broken record in the business saying, you know, let's just make sure we're cool here. You know, FDX, when you think about the lead up to that event, Sam Bankman-Fried was the golden child of venture capital, of the media, of everyone. Like the chances if you just looked at what was happening on the surface of that firm going under was virtually zero, you know? So then to kind of have that approach where you're saying even FTX is a risk, people have gone through the GFC, you know, Lehman Brothers never would have been seen as a risk until it actually happened. So I think those lessons and actually cutting our teeth in other markets has been very, very important to survive and thrive from this point on. I think that's a really interesting point within my tech space exactly as you recognize I feel as though a lot of us or a lot of the investors got on the momentum trade, but now's the time to really actually see the businesses survive are those that have those fundamentals down pat. Now that leads me to ask the question too around the product. I assume it's hard to source that quality product of different platforms. How do you go about, you know, sourcing, assessing some of the risks that are inherent? Yeah, sure. So when we think about how we release product, really a lot of what we do is trade ideation uh, that can add value to different investors, hedge funds, investment funds in the space, which is primarily my focus. The other part of the business is research lab and creating buoyancy in the Web3 space. And those two connect in many ways. But I'll start on my side. So you know, we look at upcoming events, right? So the, a good example is um, Ethereum's going through its Shanghai upgrade next month in April. So that's caused the volatility to increase in expectation and lead up to this event. One of the key things that's happening in the ETH Shanghai upgrade is that 15% of the supply is becoming unlocked because basically market participants have locked up to stake and earn yield over this period. So that creates potential volatility and it creates directional two-way flows. So we take an event like that and we sit down with the trading team and say, hey, what's a really interesting way to play this? And we build trading strategies in options markets, futures, and spot to enable more improved risk-adjusted return profiles for those investors. The other thing that we look at is we look at say Bitcoin as uh, this hedge, you know, at the moment. Here's another example. So we're seeing Bitcoin rallying on the back of these banking failures, SVB, Signature Bank, Silvergate. And we look at medium to long-term paradigm shifting themes that could potentially have value for different investor groups. So Bitcoin, the one way to play it would be to say, well, I think Bitcoin has limited supply ultimately of 21 million coins. 
that's going to buy it and we're going to hold it with a strong custodian that's verifiable. Okay, that's one way some of our customers play it. The other way we can do it is say, we know inflation is a problem at the moment. There's a lot of uncertainty around whether growth is going into a recession. You know, we had lower CPI data yesterday in Australia. Is the RBA going to hold? What's going to happen with the housing market? You know, there's so much uncertainty in intermarkets. You kind of think, well, that's going to create lots of volatility in risk assets and safe haven assets and non-sovereign assets like Bitcoin in the short term. But we know in the long term there's going to be value. So one way to play this is we create things like a principal protected note. And what that does is we say, if you lock up your capital for a year, we'll let you participate in 70 to 80% of Bitcoin's upside, but your downside is protected. And the way we do that is through really interesting structured products that are common in investment banks, as you would know. Now, these are better ways to play the market, you know, and we kind of think deeply around how we can create these products for our um, investors. You're taking me back to my days of derivatives by saying, oh, let's play some volatility. Yeah, 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 (laughs) for sure. (laughs) To write that Black Shoals model. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, Now I'm going to ask a question on security. I think any technology platform is at risk, even a non-technology platform, most we've seen across some of the traditional names more recently. How and what do you do around some of those challenges? Sure. So we um, have a SOC 2 audit in our business. We have constant data integrity checks, penetration testing, uh, and the like. For our custody, we're one of the few custodians that give each individual customer of ours a unique wallet address. So not only can they verify on the public blockchain that their assets are well and truly there, unlike, say, FTX or Celsius, where it's in more of a black box, but it also segregates hacking risk between all of these different wallets, right? Because for each wallet, you have to hack a new private key, which further creates security around funds. We're actually insured by Lloyd's for our custodial solution. So that took about two years of um, very invasive kind of digs into our business, <laughs> which ultimately Lloyd's was excellent. Thank you. But it was uh, it was a long process. But we got this insurance, right, which means that in the event of death, destruction of the private keys, we're covered up to um, a fairly substantial amount with Lloyd's. That's the second really important thing to note. The third is we've got a very deep partnership with a firm called Fireblocks, They are the largest private key management solution in in the space. And they've got incredible technology. We basically use them for private key management. And then we lock and shard those private keys in bank vaults across Melbourne and globally too. So we've got a very strong governance process around how we access those private keys, how capital is moved. And for many of our customers, we involve them in that governance process. So they can come in and be involved in the approval of the moving of assets through 2FA technology, two-factor authentication, uh, which creates further security modules. So in short, it can be as customized or as off the shelf as they like, but that works really well with the institutional counterparties and hedge funds because some want a lot of control. Others just say, hey, we know you guys have it. It's all good, you know? Interesting. 
And the competitive landscape, who do you see as your competitors and where do the big banks sit within that? Yeah, it's a good question. So in the crypto space, because we're in a tier one jurisdiction with really good licensing and we've got ins to Asia, there's only really a handful of competitors. And it's really the other investment banking models out there. Galaxy, uh, Genesis now, or ex-Genesis, I should say, GSR, you know, some of these um, trading firms. On the institutional space and TradFi space, it's a funny relationship we have with the Instos because it's very collaborative and we build together. We've got awesome proof of concepts and we're working together to enable their digital asset strategy and help them de-risk. And a quick example of that is when we ran the proof of concept for a purchase with the ANZ Bank stablecoin, you know, just for them to hold Ethereum, like $20 worth of Ethereum to pay for the gas, the transfer of the stablecoin, took quite a lot of planning because the regulators, APRA, are still getting their head around what it means to hold crypto on a balance sheet. So we've come in and created an added value there where we can help them de-risk through really strong processes, compliance, and custody of these assets. But on the other, on the flip side, they're kind of a competitor to us, right? Because we're ultimately gunning to own, you know, the institutional space and, you know, be that core partner. But where I see it building out, I think it's very similar to the how the FX space grew. And what happened was before the GFC, the major banks all controlled the FX flows. Post-GFC, all this very strong regulation came in and you have uh, like hedge funds and prop firms like XTX, and prime of primes like IS Prime all come in and capture market share. And ultimately, it became a really synergistic relationship because they were able to trade and offer really bespoke technology-driven trading services out there. But ultimately, the really big risk would still land up at the banks and the institutions with the balance sheet. And I think that's where we're going. You know, we'll ultimately be agile and face a lot of these customers that need a, a, you know, a firm that can move quickly uh, and create strong trading products at the whim. But the institutions, when you get the really large capital flows, we will still end up facing them to help hedge out risk, you know, use them for banking relationships and the larger fiat capital flows. Now, Jonathan, I feel like we've just touched the surface. So if anyone is listening, please do reach out if you do want my information. But before I... Uh, close this call <laughs> i want to quickly go and ask what's the outlook what's next on the horizon for zero cap are you going to build more products are you going to tackle more markets are you going to deepen the tech talk me through it yeah look i think there's two key things going on this year like we do want to open that office in singapore which will be an awesome gateway to the rest of asia and uh just having feet on the ground for our existing asian clients i think will be really great the second part of it is technology, right? We want to improve our reporting. We want to improve our customer interaction with our technology, our front-end facing customer tech. Our back-end technology is awesome. Our risk systems are great. I think our front-end tech could be more user-friendly and we're bringing UX people on and, and great designers to enable that in a better way. You know, I keep saying that this year we want to find the Johnny Ives from Apple <laughs> to help us with that. So that's a real big goal for us this year. You know, from a macroeconomic perspective, I do think Bitcoin's got this potential to just fly on the back of banking and, and credit risk. 
I think people forget that most of the world cannot get a tier one bank account. You know, so the 160 or so community banks in the US that are at risk, it's not like every US citizen can just walk into a Bank of America and just open an account. Those community banks serve small businesses and different segments in American banking uh, that are potentially at risk. So where do they put their money? And then you've also got global emerging markets. You know, I've got um, a family in Malawi that, that we give money to. You know, they struggle to hold just a single bank account, even though they've got regular capital coming in. You know, they're constantly having to bounce between tier three or worse type bank accounts with really worrying capital ratios. So where does that money flow, you know, ultimately? And Bitcoin's got this unique non-bearer asset quality to it that is a hedge. You know, it's a hedge against hyperinflation in places like Venezuela, where it's a hedge against banking and credit risk. So I think there is like it's a less than 50% probability, but incredibly high impact if it happens that the broader market starts bidding Bitcoin as a totally separate non-sovereign asset to the rest of the crypto space against safe haven flows and also against risk assets and equities. And I've been saying this for like three or four years, and I don't want to say I'm right this time, but we'll see. But I really do think it's a unique use case. So a lot of what we're building is around that thesis, but in a risk-adjusted way. Well, we'll have to keep circling around at least in three years' time, probably yeah. sooner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, Thank yeah. Thank you once again. <laughs> Jonathan DeVette, the co-founder and CIO of Digital Assets and Zero Cap. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Elise. See you again. See you, thanks.